Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This week's conversation is with someone we respect tremendously for his scientific honesty, rigor, courage, and artful expression that can powerfully penetrate the minds of millions of people. Yes, it is possible to embody all of those aspects of science in one person, and that person is Dr. David Katz, who is the founder and former director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative. We love the fact that Dr. Katz's approach to science takes into consideration the long arch of how everything we do affects not only our risk for disease, but also our environment and ultimately our planet. We're thrilled to have him as our guest again. In this episode, we delved into the subject that has affected all of us over the last year and a half, which is COVID-19, its effect on our personal lives, our communities, and what we learned about the failings of our society in the face of such a formidable opponent, the failings of our system to adapt to such a novel threat, about how such threat brought deep divisions into our society, and ultimately about ourselves. We hope you enjoy this in-depth and personal conversation with Dr. Katz. Thank you, first of all, for joining us. We started the conversation by speaking about how we lost a loved one, our mother-in-law, Dean's mother, during this year and how painful that experience was. And that this has been an unprecedented year that left us all in, in shock. And I don't think I mean, almost everybody hasn't experienced anything like this. We weren't there during the 1918 pandemic and it has devastated a lot of people. And um it's important for all of us to kind of step back and take a grand look at this and, and see how it affected us and what are the steps moving forward as a society and what we've learned from what we all experienced. Yeah, so Aisha, Dean, uh, you know, first of all, I'm so sorry for your personal loss. And, uh, you know, I think to share a, a message with the general audience about both the, the personal aspects of COVID, but also the, the personal aspects of public health. I think we, we can maybe generalize from this. You know, I, I've known since the start of my career in preventive medicine nearly 30 years ago that incontrovertibly we had the means to prevent 80% of premature deaths and, and chronic disease. But when you say that, and, and you know, again, we, we've just had a very heartfelt exchange uh, about the loss of your mother, Dean. And um, when you talk about an 80% reduction in premature mortality, it's not heartfelt that way. You, you don't bring a tear to people's eyes because it sounds like it's somebody else. The public is always mm -hmm. somebody else. The public is a statistical mass. It has no face. You can't love it. And that's the great fallacy of public health. To understand the large patterns, we have to speak in terms of rates and incidents and prevalence and numbers and statistics. But there is no public. The, the great fiction in all of this is that there's no such thing as the public. The public is you and me and your family and my family and everybody else and their family and together we're the public. But you know there is no statistical, anonymous, non-human mass. It's real people, real families. 
And so the value proposition in, in what we've devoted our careers to, lifestyle medicine, mm -hmm. adding years to lives, adding life to years, preventing the bad outcomes that were pandemic before the pandemic. Heart disease was mm -hmm. pandemic. Dementia was mm -hmm. pandemic. Diabetes is pandemic. Obesity is pandemic. These rob years from lives, life from years every year. They hide in plain sight. But you know, here too, the losses are, are deeply felt. So you know, again, I, I think one of the, the key issues that pertains to this discussion we're having, you know, along with, again, the, the assault of this, the, the personal assault, of this, we, we've all been touched by this pandemic and, and suffered losses, uh, is to understand that that's always true, that everything that goes on in public health is about real people. And, and some right. family suffering a loss. And so any which way we can forestall premature death and prevent chronic disease has to be given the primacy it deserves. And it's not, right? I mean, you know, we're outliers, those of us in the lifestyle medicine realm. We're, we're outliers. We're, we're trying to change the system. The system says, let people get what they get and react afterwards and hospitalize them as needed and, and use drugs and surgery. But don't look at the root causes and, you know, and try to propagate vitality. It's just, it's just wrong. And, and the two things intersect. So you know, the view from altitude of the pandemic, uh, you, know, Aisha, you mentioned we, we weren't here in 1918. It's a real wake-up call for me because you know, when I got my MPH at Yale, I certainly studied the, the great pandemics of history. So, you know, I knew the epidemiology and, and, and understood, you know, the, the, again, the statistics of how many people died and, and, you know, global distribution. I never, and, and, you know, sort of shame on me for this, but it never even dawned on me to ask, what did it feel like? What did it feel like to be a family worrying, is one of us going to get this? Is one of us going to die from this? I, I, yeah. It never crossed my mind. And, you know, I think we have that tendency to think that prior generations, you know, they're quaint. They're, they're, they're archived in the history books. They're different from us. They weren't real people who felt stuff the way yeah. we do. O only people <laughs> here right now feel stuff the way we do. And it's nonsense. I mean, people were always the same. Right. So now we have a taste of that. And of course, it was worse in 1918 for one thing the pandemic was massively worse for another you know it it, it was uh, overlying the ravages of world war one mm -hmm. uh, that was devastating the world was in turmoil in a whole variety of ways much worse than now and lacked the scientific resources we had today i mean there, were, there was no hope of a highly effective vaccine being developed in 12 months yeah. So, you know, I have a deep appreciation now for much of what I've learned about the history of public health and my failure to think at all about how it felt. And, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. I mean, to me, that, that, was, that was a real aha moment. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I was working at NIH in the experimental therapeutics branch, it doesn't get any more wonky than that. Right. The next, in 2002, then I was asked to go to Afghanistan. And what I was seeing was one out of four children die in front of my eyes. Women dying from pregnancy-related complications, one in six. That was an incredible eye-opener. Really, in fact, really it was such an eye-opener that completely changed my perspective from this molecular approach to the preventive side. Uh, seeing that how effective prevention can be in those places. So some of these esoteric arguments that we have here in in our society here about masks or this or that. To me, it's like you just have to go just one step further outside of the United States and see 
how effective prevention can be. And those arguments become a little more solidified. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, t- I totally yeah. agree. And, you know, again, I, I, I encountered that less vividly because it was in the literature rather than, a, a, you know, an up close and personal experience. But it was right at the start of my career. And I, you know, I completed my training in internal medicine, did my residency in preventive medicine, and I knew I wanted to do clinical research. But at the time, I thought, you know, I would probably do what researchers do, which is try to come up with the next erudite question nobody had thought to ask and pursue the answer. And then I tripped over the seminal McGinnis and Fagey paper in 1993, Actual Causes of Death in the United States, which drove home the point that what we already know could prevent 80% of premature deaths and chronic disease. I thought, I, I can't justify being another person focused on the 20% we don't know, while we do so little with the 80% we do. I've, mm-hmm. I've got to devote my career to putting that to better use. And the rest is history. So anyway, I think that that pertains to the pandemic. I, you know, th- There's a famous saying, those who don't learn from the follies of history are destined to repeat them. I think we repeated them on steroids, as it were, because this is the first great pandemic in the internet age. And that changed everything because, and, and we can get into this as you like, but we really, we, we had an infodemic. And, yeah. you know, the, I, I think the particular problem, and I, I opined about this uh, in, in many outlets over the course of the pandemic, but, you know, I think the particular problem here was that bad information went viral even better than SARS-CoV-2. So, yeah, the, the viral pandemic was bad, but the distortion of information traveled even faster. So that it wasn't just facts about the pandemic. It was opinion about facts about the pandemic. And then it was opinion about opinion about facts about the pandemic and you know many layers of opinion reverberating outward. And so much of the information turned quite bad and did what information tends to do these days, gravitated to the polls. And it wasn't long before you really had to pick a tribe. You either had to be yeah. in the hunker in your bunker until we're safe with a vaccine tribe or liberate my state with none of the necessary essential nuanced discussion that should inform public health response in the middle happening because nobody was willing to talk to anybody else or listen to anyone else because of this amplification of you know, essentially hyperbolic opinion. So I think we have a whole new lesson here about the, the dangers of an infodemic, which can in fact travel faster than any virus. And I think we bungled this whole thing. I, you know, My position from the start I would maintain for any pandemic, and that is the objective should be to minimize total harms. Identify who's at risk of bad outcomes from the virus and make sure they don't get it. Do what's mm-hmm. necessary to make sure they don't get it. Older people, people in nursing homes. We, we failed miserably at protecting the most vulnerable. We didn't do nearly enough. On the other yeah. hand, there were definitely cohorts of people at quite low risk overall, as best we could tell with the information available from the infection and potentially at graver risk of really bad outcomes from losing their livelihoods. Well, that counts too. And, and you know, I, I've done a couple of webinars. I had one in Berkeley where I, I was on with Nick Bloom, who's a, an economist at Stanford. And I've, I've shared some of the uh, slides that Nick presented ever since, showing that if you lose your livelihood around midlife for an extended period of time, on average, it takes about a year and a half off of your life expectancy. And you know, if the estimates were that 20 million or more Americans did that, that's 30 million years of life lost, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. actually is greater than the years of life lost from the virus directly. Doesn't mean one is more important than the other. It just means total harm minimization is an obvious pandemic objective. Mm-hmm. And then you know, everything we do in medicine and public health is risk-based. 
Yeah. We had yeah. massive information very early out of Wuhan, out of South Korea, that there were huge risk differentials related to SARS-CoV-2. And again, you told me the story of, of your mother, who sounds like an absolutely amazing person. But at 83, she would have been in the highest risk group. I mean, you know, absolutely mm -hmm. essential that she not be exposed to this virus. And tragically, the outcome was as you described to me. But, you know, again, uh, there, there were people who clearly could not get exposed. And we let them get exposed because in many yeah. parts of the country were cavalier. The, the other thing is pandemics are global. And what we're seeing now in India, you know, I think is, a, and I've always declared myself a humanist. So, you know, to me, the tribe is all of us. There, there is no yes. us in them. There's just us. So, you know, it, it comes naturally to me to say, we're not through this until we're all through this. But even if you're not a humanist, if you want to be a nationalist, okay, fine. But SARS-CoV-2 doesn't care about politics or borders. And the simple fact is that if it's circulating in a billion people with an opportunity to mutate, it will. And the strains yeah. that are most effective at transmitting will. You know, what, what's prevalent now in India is a B1167 strain. They refer to it yeah. as triple mutant because it has three distinct mutations from the original SARS-CoV-2 strain. Mm. And it's still vulnerable to the vaccines. In other words, the vaccines will still protect you from this strain. But it's a whole new baseline. So if, you know, yeah. if millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or close to a billion people are now harboring a triple mutant version of the virus, well, one more advantageous mutation, it's a quadruple mutant. And yeah. then if that one mutates again, it's a, you know, at some point it's different enough that the whole damn thing starts over again with what is yeah. effectively a new pathogen. I'm not going to spend my life worrying about the next pandemic before we get out of this one. But on the other hand, it would be silly to ignore that and say, we really want to get the world through this. And I, I don't think there's been nearly enough global coordination. And then finally, and this is sort of the, the pivot that I think is most relevant to the beautiful work you do, uh, what I do and what brings us together, lifestyle medicine, the, the glaring blind spot in all of this has been the massive overlap between the pandemics we had before and this mm -hmm. one in, in right. two particular ways. One, we had a huge burden of unnecessary cardiometabolic disease, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, diseases of inflammation, neurodegenerative disease, all of that. And that's a massive liability related to COVID. We, we've seen that every step along the way, but most recently a paper by Mozafarian and colleagues in the Journal of the American Heart Association which looks specifically at the preventability of hospitalization for COVID in the United States, if only. If only we had managed the obvious cardiometabolic disease. And their estimate is that 60% of all hospitalization, and by extension, 60% of the mortality, could have been prevented if we had treated the pandemic we already had before. So that's one mm -hmm. key point. And I hear way too little dialogue about that. Essentially, yeah. the acute benefit of chronic health, way too little. Time. Yeah. I mean, there's never been a, a more teachable moment, right? Now is the time to say the, the benefits of chronic health are chronic and, oh, by the way, acute too. And then the second yeah. issue is the global food supply. Since, you know, this, as best we know, and there's still some debate about the origins of this lab error, you know, mishap versus uh, natural origin. But we know, for example, that epidemic flu every year is related to zoonotic infection. You know, essentially, these are flu strains that, that originate. We talk about swine flu and avian flu. Well, you know, those words mean something. Swine means pigs yeah. and avian means birds. And that's because in particular, you know, in China, animal husbandry, close association of people and animals means these viruses can go from one to the other. 
and they can mutate in the animals in ways that they couldn't do in us and then come back to us and then we're in big trouble. And, you know, so essentially sourcing these animal products as part of the global food supply is a massive liability and yeah. a huge part of the reason we had this pandemic and the likely reason we will have the next. Yeah, no, yeah. I fully agree. I'm beautifully stated in, in general terms, both from the preventive component and the food component that we, we always talk about, the, right. the relationship. One thing that I wanted to kind of bring up here is that there's a little bit of a problem with information, how it's communicated to the public or how the public is aware of how science works. So there is a, as you beautifully stated, that it's a informatic uh, epidemic. Infodemic. Uh, infodemic right now. <laughs> With that comes a problem that if the information being dispersed is not accurate, it, it actually becomes an impediment. It becomes an inertia in itself and it stops progress. In many ways, there was a lot of impediments in 1918, but now the impediment seems to be us. In many parts, that has been the impediment. We have the technology. We have the knowledge. We have the ability to disperse information. But with that disbursement information comes imperfect information, and that becomes an impediment. So one of the expectations from general public is that science is perfect or it's binary. The way you know social media is yes, no, black, white, this, that. It's not. It's 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 imperfect. You know, my favorite statement is, you know, we fly the airplane while while you're know, making it, you know, or designing it. And that's been the case for all of science, even things like nuclear physics. It's not a perfect binary, in fact, especially nuclear physics, but it's not a binary science. And the evolving nature of that data and what appears to the general public to be imperfect data comes across as if it's a uh, flawed or flawed or, or even worse, yeah. that's intended to be flawed. Right. And all the that comes with that, political or otherwise, that I see as as becoming a major impediment, more than even the science. I, I have great hopes for science solving a lot of problems. Both of our kids are smarter than their parents. They're going to AI and AI-based medicine and, and all of that. And I think that's the future. It's going to solve a lot of problems. But what's the point if you can't disperse information to the public because the public has to be involved in public health? Sorry, there was a long ways around, but that's what we've been experiencing. Yeah, this, and, this, and yeah. it's been very difficult. And even as public health advocates and physicians who work in the clinic and in the hospital, and we take pride in keeping ourselves involved and informed, it's very, it was very difficult. And truly, we've lost friends and people family. around us and family members because of the inability to feel comfortable in the nuance of the discussion. And one of the things that I learned as an individual, as a physician during this time was just that. It really is difficult to expand on the nuance and have constructive conversations and create a, a comfortable environment for people to thrive, to live, to avoid disease. Aisha, I've long had the impression that Newton's third law of motion did not just pertain to blocks of flotsam in space, but kind of pertained to human psychology as well for every action, an equal and opposite reaction, and sadly, yeah. more often than not, just wrong in a new direction. I mean, that's certainly been yeah. true about diet, right? We just cut fat. Well, if that didn't work, let's just cut carbs no. and get it wrong all over again. Yeah. So, you know, we, we tend to do these silly things. And I, I think in the pandemic, the, the infodemic played a decisive role. 
you know, again, and, you know, to forgive ourselves a little bit, we have never dealt with a pandemic like this in the internet age before. So, you know, maybe we can allow ourselves to get it wrong the first time, as long as we learn something and don't do it again. But we did a terrible job. And part of the reason was, this was really the first time that public health officials, so, you know, even very reasonable, well-educated people were obligated to address immediately before they'd really had any time to gather data, know the science, get prepared, massive public reaction to distorted points of view about what was happening 10 seconds ago. I mean, you know, there was just no time to think. And so if you thought, gee, that's dangerous, pretty much all you had the time to do was go to the opposite pole and say, that's totally wrong, do the 180. And all nuance was basically, you know, laid to waste. And public health policy in response to something as challenging as, as a viral pandemic must be nuanced. So I, I agree, it was, a, it was an enormous problem. Then on the general issue of science, actually the best scientists are the most humble. One of the people I was privileged to interact with throughout the pandemic was Mike Osterholm, who's widely recognized as one of the world's leading pandemic response experts. Yeah. And of all the people I talked to during the pandemic, Mike was the least sure about anything. And, and by the way, he's been wrong too, like the rest of us. He was against masks before he was for masks. And you know, I mean, we've all been wrong about stuff. But Mike was never surprised about being wrong. He said, I've studied pandemics my entire career, and the more I do, the less I know what I know. Yeah. Because they fool you. And you know that, that I think all of the scientists I admire most are incredibly humble people who recognize the power of science to drive us toward these hard-to-reach truths, but respect how humbling it is along the way because there are many more ways to be wrong than right. And you kind of have to navigate through them to get to truth. There is another issue, though, and I think it's neglected by scientists. It's certainly neglected by the media, and therefore it's not surprising that it's neglected by the public, and and we can maybe defend it here. I I have argued for years, the True Health Initiative, my nonprofit, is all about this, that science and sense are symbiotic, that you could think of science as having the power of a freight train to drive us toward hard-to-reach truths we could not otherwise reach, but sense must lay the tracks. If you've got mm-hmm. the train and no tracks, you get a train wreck. <laughs> it's not yeah. a good yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. you, have massive, you have massive power, but you have a mess. On the other hand, if you have tracks and no train, okay, you can walk along the tracks, but your progress will be very slow. Science is a fantastic accelerator in our quest for understanding and truth. You combine tracks and train and incredible thing. You can go to whole new places you couldn't reach before. Yeah. They need yeah. one another. And, and you know, stated maybe in more simplistic terms, science is the best means we've devised to answer hard questions. Sense tells us what the sensible questions are in the first place. And if you don't ask good mm-hmm. questions, there are no good answers. And then the other thing that really does matter, and it, you know, it, it's hard to discern through all the noise of our polarized society, is the global consensus of experts about the current weight of evidence. Because no one study changes everything we know about anything. We're Mm -hmm. constantly adding what we learned today and yesterday and this week to what we knew up until this week and saying, Mm -hmm. "Does, does it shift our perception a little bit? If yes, we'll shift with the evidence, we ought to. If no, we'll say, okay, one more incremental dollop to what we already knew, very nice, it's confirmatory. But that's what we really need to follow. And and true experts do that and say, you know, there's a lot I don't know, but I do know what the weight of evidence about diet and longevity or 
lifestyle practices and cognition. I, I know what that says and I'm able to interpret that. And by the way, most people who do what I do look at that body of evidence and reach a similar conclusion. I really think there's power at the confluence of science, sense, and expert consensus, ideally global yeah. expert consensus. We defend that at the True Health Initiative and I, and I write about that. And I think ultimately we can hope since we didn't do it in real time, maybe for the pandemic, we can do it in retrospect. And if we do, and we, and we make sense out of all this, the lessons will be about the power of science because you know the advent of these RNA vaccines in record time was amazing, but also tell us something about managing the hype, managing the drama. I mean, you know, this was a feeding frenzy for the media. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, th this this was just basically a media cash cow. Everybody yeah. was riveted to pick your favorite channel, CNN, whatever it may have been. But every day, oh my God, what's happening today? Well, they know that, and they didn't they didn't do anything to douse those fires. In fact, throughout the pandemic, anytime something particularly awful happened, however much of an outlier it was, it you know it made international news. It was headlines everywhere, yeah. right? I mean, if, if ever a young, healthy person died of the virus or a young person, whether or not healthy, you know, we'd get that story and, and you sometimes have to get to paragraph, you know, 12 before discovering actually the person wasn't healthy, that there was, there was yeah. some reason they had some serious chronic illness. And, but, you know, I mean, the, the media amplified the problem. All of this is grist for the mill as we go forward. Can we grind this down, look at the elements that could have been better managed, and maybe do better than Newtonian action, reaction, <laughs> let's get it wrong in both directions next yeah. time? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and I think it's a, an experience like this can be an incredible um, foundation for societal change in general, because it's always about communication and understanding and how we interact with information, especially in an age where information is everywhere. I don't know if we have created a mechanism to better that communication. In fact, I think this just forced people into their own camps and their own confirmation biases which, um, and more. But nonetheless, you know, I'm always hopeful for the, I always say there's a component of future seeking, about two to 5% of population, which seems that it's not enough. Dr. Pinkert's from Harvard speaks about this and others. But it always shapes society at the end when you look in retrospect. So I'm very hopeful that, that, that we will see this in the future. Right now, it feels more chaos yeah. than order. Yeah, I, I agree. I, actually, two things in biology. One makes me nervous. One makes me hopeful. The, the one that makes me nervous is essentially paleoanthropology. Uh, you know, we're tribal. We're extremely impressionable. Social animals need to fit in. I mean, you know, it's one of the reasons for the, the popularity of all these competing versions of religion and absolute truth. You, you know, whatever you're told as a kid, you believe. <laughs> and these things are, you know, mutually incompatible with one another, mutually exclusive views yeah. of, of, you know, the ultimate truth. But whichever one yeah. you were told as a kid, generally you tend to believe it. It's not it's not haphazard or arbitrary either that you know kids who grow up in a Republican household are more likely to be Republican. Kids who grow up with Democrats are more likely to be Democratic. We're impressionable. It's a survival trait for a social species, and we're a social species, but we're social in relatively small units, you know, dozens maybe. So we're okay with that. It's unclear how good we are <laughs> with vast numbers. Um, we seem to yeah. be a bit of a mess. And our impressionability makes us vulnerable to conspiracy theories, all sorts of nonsense. If your tribe, even if it's a virtual tribe, starts to propagate a message, again, we kind of, we're biologically 
preconditioned, preconceived to accept it. That wor- that's the part that worries me. Here's the part that I find quite hopeful. Baby Einstein was just a baby. Baby Newton was just a baby, right? I mean, all babies are babies and babies have that impressionability. And then they have to mature to develop minds that can astound us. So there, there are these very, and you, you guys know this better than I do, but they're, you know, they're very clearly articulated developmental milestones in the psychological development of children. And one of the things that changes markedly at adolescence is gullibility. I mean, you just, you start mm-hmm. to become more autonomous, less trusting. You know, you, you, I'll trust, but you know, I need verification now. I mean, that's just part of maturing. My hope is we're in the infancy or maybe just exiting the infancy of the hive mind, what the internet did to us, connected us all, you know, made it possible to process information at a scale never before known. But that is a mind independent of each of our individual minds. It's a whole, as you say, Dean, it's a whole new way of communicating. Yeah. And it's an infant or maybe now a toddler. And so it lacks filters. It lacks judgment. It doesn't differentiate sense from nonsense, but maybe it too can mature. And as we get used to harnessing the power of this collective mind, if we can mature it and it can become a sophisticated device for sifting sense and nonsense, good information from bad, it becomes a massive accelerator of good information and advancing science. And you know, then it's an incredibly potent tool for good. And, it, and, and all of it's spill over into artificial intelligence, machine learning. I, you know, I think there's huge potential there. So I'm hopeful in, in my more sanguine moments and quite concerned in my less <laughs> sanguine moments. I, I think there's cause for a bit of both. Oh my goodness. I think we have a few talks coming up about <laughs> just that. Beautiful. We have, and, and, and this, I really think that that is where I place hope. Yeah. In the past, we didn't have the data sifting mechanism and still look where we are. Yeah, it took a thousand years, but we are where we are. Yeah, we're you know uh, the women's rights, every all these other concepts as far as well as data, how we deal with data. You know, um, somebody doesn't come and say, you know, here's a crystal. Although we have that crystal thing, but, uh, but <laughs> the I think I lost thing. a bunch well, of yeah, right, right now. Okay. Wow. <laughs> no, but but we we still I think I have hope for this sifting mechanism of the social yeah. media and, and beyond to give us higher truths. And you're right. We have two teenagers that uh, obstinate, uh, intrinsic need to oppose and to find a new path. I think it's programmed in yeah. the prefrontal lobe. Yep. That's yes. that's the, there is no other reason for the prefrontal lobe except to go outside of the norm, and we're not using it. We're still stuck to the limbic emotional brain and creating little hives of our own. But I think I fully agree. Uh, not to get too far away from yeah, that no, but central I, I, topic. It's here. my hope. I, I I would like to think that maybe the hive mind is an extension of our individual minds, and it too must mature. And when it does, it can be a potent force for good, as the Homo sapien brain individually has been. Although a source of a great deal of mischief as well, right? So, you know, we're we're always going to have to work really hard (laughs) to harness the power for good and control the potential for bad because they tend to go together. They go together in everything, right? Medical interventions, the more potent they are, uh, you know, the more capable of intervening effectively when things are really going badly, the stuff you do in the ICU, the more dangerous it is too because you're just harnessing greater power. Uh, So... I, I absolutely just to get back to the topic of although I don't want to but because this is such a beautiful conversation but you personally had an experience with this disease at two levels you actually w- volunteered to work in the ICU 
and uh, Aisha and I, more Aisha because she's a stroke specialist, but both of us have dealt with ICU patients. And you actually experienced the disease personally. So what's uh, your perspective from that angle? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of volunteering, so I, I, you know, I saw patients for 30 years, but I stopped a few years back just because other demands on my time made it impossible to manage the balance anymore. And I, I, I wanted to devote the remainder of my career to impact at scale. Again, uh, same mission, adding years to lives, adding life to years, but no longer having the time to do that one-on-one, which is an incredible privilege, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah. medicine gets a lot of bad knocks these days. And sure, there are all sorts of issues with the practice and reimbursement. But, you know, the, to be the person who can be there in moments of greatest need and help another human, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a gift. It's, an, it's a huge burden too, but uh, the burden of responsibility, but it's such an incredible privilege. I, mean, I wouldn't trade yes. it for anything. But I'm still a fully licensed physician in Connecticut. And a call went out during the surge in our part of the country in the Northeast over a year ago now both through the state of New York and my alma mater, Albert Einstein College of Medicine for Volunteers. I, I started out with the state of New York. I tried to sign up there. I kept running into bureaucratic hurdles. I just couldn't get through this. I did basically a whole week's worth of onboarding, and I still wasn't appropriately sanitized, couldn't get through. And while I was hoping to get that sorted out, I got this call from Einstein. It was a quick process. And and so theoretically, New York was sending me to Brooklyn and my medical school said, no, we're good to go. You're, you're fine. You're going to the Bronx. So I went to the Bronx and, and I volunteered in an emergency department there. And, and I thought it was important for two reasons. One, the greater one, the lesser. The greater one was because I could. And I thought, yeah. you know, what I can contribute as one doc is trivial. But if every doc who can contribute a week contributes a week, and there are thousands of us, it's far from trivial. So that's my hope. And I'm not going to just count on my colleague doing her part. I'm going to do my part. And then if I do my part and she does her part and we all do our part, we're going to make a massive difference and everything will be much better. So so I did my very little part. And you know, again, I, I have great appreciation and respect for the frontline clinicians, you among them, Aisha, who, you know, who were there all along. I wasn't. You know, I, I made a very modest incremental contribution because I could and therefore I felt I should. But the other reason was I was already beginning to opine about the pandemic response and policy. And at the time that I was trying to get deployed during the surge in New York, my op-ed ran in the New York Times about the issue of total harm minimization. I thought, you know, if people are going to be coming to me for my opinion about this, I don't want to just understand it, you know, from the comfort of an armchair. Yeah. I want to really know what this feels like and looks like. And it's important. I mean, you know, that that's a critical part of the perspective here. So I just thought it was my responsibility, both as a clinician and as somebody who was being, you know, considered a, a thought leader on the pandemic response. And it, you know, mostly reaffirmed everything I thought I knew. I, I saw lots of people come to the ER in ambulances from nursing homes who were desperately ill. Yeah. But these are people who were elderly and frail and chronically ill to begin with, and were all in the very high risk group. If they got COVID, it was clearly going to be a bad thing. We saw a lot of young people in the ER who had COVID and didn't know. They were there for a laceration or you know something else. Oh, by the way, your COVID test was positive. Yeah. I also saw the, the fallibility of the testing we were doing at the time. And it was wrong. We, on, on one shift, we admitted 20 people we knew had COVID. I mean, cl- wow. you, know, you told yeah. a story about your mother who had a negative COVID test and, and died of COVID. I mean, we, we were admitting people who had classic stigmata yeah. of COVID. We knew for sure they yeah. had it. Their labs couldn't be anything else. 
negative tests, negative swabs. So, so yeah. you know, I was seeing yeah. there were so many things that were just important. I also we've learned since then about the uh, the incredible danger of obesity in COVID, and I saw that. I mean, I, I saw the difficulty mm-hmm. the the you know larger patients in an emergency room gurney had even just with the repositioning that was necessary to try and keep them off ventilators. So even yeah. just the mechanical issue of obesity for them for the staff was was, was really problematic. We had just learned uh, like the week before uh, the advantages of repositioning to keep people off the vents. And when I say we, I, I get no credit, the, the clinical community. So my colleagues in the ER were telling me last week we would have put this person on a ventilator. And this week we're, we're going to do everything possible to make sure they don't go on a ventilator because they do better if, if not. And I saw some of those people turn around. It, it, was, it was an incredible experience. And I figured I might get COVID then because, you know, it's on the front lines in, yeah. you know, in the epicenter of the epicenter in the Bronx. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had to argue with my wife to do this. She cried and begged me not to. My kids cried and begged me not to. My mother cried and begged me not to. <laughs> it was a mess. And, and you know, my wife and I really had a, a pretty serious argument about it. I said, you know, I, I cannot sit back and count on the other guy. You know, I mean, you know, she's got a husband. He's got a wife. I mean, you know, I mean, they are going to have the same experience. Somebody's got to go where nobody goes. And if nobody goes, yeah. terrible things are going to happen. I have to go. I just have to. But so anyway, everybody was very relieved that I made it back and, you know, nothing bad had happened to me. And then a year later, my whole family got COVID. Uh, oh, we wow. think, you know, sort of probed the origins of this and, and the sequence. It started with we, three of our five kids were home at the time and all five of us got it. And my son uh, was the first. So in brief, we went out for dinner in New Haven and we were all careful and we were all fine. But we were outside on the street in our bubble after the dinner and took off our masks and wound up being accosted by a homeless person who was drunk uh, and pretty belligerent. Yeah. We, we tried to offer him food. We didn't have money. We tried to offer him food. He got really upset with us. And my son, who's an incredibly compassionate guy, was just really trying to figure out how can I help you and, and had this, like, you know, this intimate conversation three inches apart <laughs> for an extended oh. period of time. And next thing we knew... Uh, he had COVID, then my daughter got COVID, then my other daughter got mm. COVID, then my wife and I got it. Oh and the my. kids being healthy young adults, you know, were unpleasantly sick for 24 hours, quickly recovered and full recovery in a week. My wife and mm. I, each of us about a week apart, spent three or so days in bed, never any danger, never anything remotely, you know, and, and I attribute that to general, not our age, you know, we're in, we're in a higher risk group, 58. She's just a little older, but, you know, we're very healthy. We practice what we preach. So yeah. three days in bed, you know, not pleasant, but flu-like. Uh, by the way, total loss of olfaction. It turns oh, off yeah. like a light switch. It was incredible. Wow. We just, it's, wow. smell nothing and, and just yeah. amazing. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, three and a half months or so later, I still have the dwindling tail end of long COVID. Now, that's not too bad. I'm not complaining. But I've had for three months or more intermittent fatigue, which at times can be quite terrible, mm-hmm. uh, intermittent headaches, which are not pleasant, and brain fog, which I can concentrate through. But the, basically, the result is a, a full day's work is just exhausting because it's, you know, yeah. it's, like, it's like you're doing this to think clearly all day long and, yeah. and you know it's pulling back against you so no 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 you know it's just exhausting but i'm almost completely better now almost back to my baseline and olfaction at best is now about 70 percent back but it continues to wax and wane so i, I still 
it, it, the the listeners may not understand this, but it's like myasthenia gravis of the nose. So to quickly explain, myasthenia <laughs> gravis is an autoimmune disease where if if you use your muscles repeatedly a few times, they just yeah. quickly fatigue and can't be used again. So I can smell mm-hmm. something. And then if I smell it again, I can barely smell it. And if I smell it again, it's gone. And so yeah. my olfaction is yeah. not back to normal. So the, yeah. the, the long tail of this thing definitely deserves respect. One, one quick final comment before we, we oh, no. shift yeah, the conversation. So here's the thing. So I did integrative medicine for 15 years. You know, after doing standard primary care internal medicine, I, I just recognized how many of my patients who had, you know, syndromes. I couldn't help. You know, people had chronic pain, chronic fatigue, all sorts of stuff that's very, very prevalent. I couldn't help them. You know, we did everything the textbook said to do and everything the randomized control trial said to do, and they weren't better. So I so said, you know, we need to, we need a bigger playbook. And I conferred with uh, naturopathic physicians and we worked together and we said, let's try to pool everything we know and be very careful about evidence, but also recognize that the results of randomized control trials run out before human need does. So what are we going to do about the, the, the people who are hard to help? So we, we did that. And one of the things that I experienced in 15 years of practicing in that model was that very often irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, when we sort of went as did our best job to get to bedrock, there was often what appeared to be a viral trigger. Mm-hmm. Now, these are common viruses. These are not exotic like SARS-CoV-2. It was herpes viruses or yeah. cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr virus, uh, maybe varicella in some people. Viruses that are extremely widespread that all of us get, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, but they often would seem to be temporally associated with the onset of symptoms. I had this seemingly relatively unimportant viral infection, and then I've never felt the same since. Sadly, when medicine gets a case of somebody who's got undiagnosable stuff, you know, and that's that's a syndrome, right? I mean, it, it doesn't get the respect of a disease. A disease yeah. is legitimate. A syndrome means you're probably a flaky person. That's medicine's <laughs> attitude. So, chronic fatigue, you're a flaky person. We, if you had a legitimate disease, there'd be a blood test to show it. Since there isn't, we're going to blame you. Okay, so that's yeah. been going on for years, and and it you know it, it basically adds insult to injury. These poor people have a terrible chronic condition, yeah. and the insult of medicine telling them it's all in your head, it's not legitimate, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what SARS-CoV-2 did, I think, is shine an incredible spotlight on the fact that we, we can't suddenly say that millions upon millions of people suddenly turn flaky all at the same time. So long COVID is getting respect. It's clearly legitimate. You get this viral infection, and then there's this long lingering syndrome afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's really important, deserves study and scrutiny and, and treatment advances in its own right, but silver lining if that helps us understand this actually happens with a lot of other pathogens too, mm-hmm. and we need to start taking that seriously, treating it compassionately, not blaming the victim, and maybe doing a better job of devising effective treatments, that would be great. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Beautifully stated, Dr. Katz. And you know, as a physician working in the hospital and in the clinic during this past year, I sort of saw the entire spectrum, You know, the acute phase reactions mm-hmm. where people would come in with uh, systemic inflammation, and for some of the people who are new to these terms, basically the virus causing a lot of damage to the body, as well as to the vasculature, seeing people coming in with strokes. I can't tell you how many people's, you know, there were numerous consultations for seizures and strokes and brain death examination, unfortunately, and to Mm. see that acute, very, very aggressive phase of the disease, 
And now in the clinic, we're seeing just number of people coming in with cognitive impairment, with you know some of the long-term sequelae of this viral infection. And um, yes, we're still learning about it. There's not a lot of good data to show us what exactly happens in the brain and in the body that causes these symptoms. And we're still in the phase of learning more about it. Like you said, loss of smell, you know, is the virus damaging the cribriform plate? Is it crossing the blood-brain barrier? Is it going to the brain? They've actually found some remnants of the virus in the brain in autopsies of people who, who've died out of this infection. So we're still learning a lot about it. But it also kind of brings everything together for me because, you know, for for those individuals who are completely against, say, vaccination or preventive measures or masking, or masking for them to understand that you don't you don't necessarily build some sort of protection against the virus by experiencing it. You have to understand that people actually go through long term sequelae of of this infection. And, And that's something that is causing a lot of disability. People are taking time off of uh, school, off of their work. They can't really function as productive individuals in the society. So we're seeing this new pattern and hopefully we'll have more information about it, but it is quite disabling. Absolutely. Yeah, and sorry, just to not to beautifully state it, but not to extend, but as a one of the things that we had experience uh, of consistently was people who opposed masks and uh, and other preventive measures would say let we let it become natural herd yeah, immunity build, build immunity you know I, and i kept making the argument we don't know enough to know that this will be without consequence and this was at the beginning of this i said this and i'm, I'm not that i'm happy that, that you know we have the data i wish i was wrong but we are seeing the long term sequela of this you're absolutely right i mean in neurology, we see this quite a bit. As somebody comes in with chronic pain, oh, it's it's the we don't say it, but the actions say that we are blaming the person. You know, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, right. all these headache syndromes. No, these are real, especially now in millions. Right, we're we're so, dealing with millions of patients. absolutely. So so here, my position is once again nuanced. So I I'm among those who said, look, we don't know when the vaccine is coming. And I'm not sure we can shut down the world for a year, yeah, two, three, five. So we need a strategy that allows for some return to supply chains and you know the things that keep the world turning for humans in the advent of ongoing pandemic difficulties without a uh, you know, fast vaccine. I, you know, in retrospect, we got it faster than we had any right to hope, but we didn't know that was yeah. going to happen. So I argued all along, look, we need to think about risk differentials, use the best available information, and then put our toes in the water and test. So the idea would be, you know, if young, healthy people are at lowest risk, then let's see what happens if we limit restrictions, you know, basically meticulously protect the older people and people with chronic disease, mm-hmm. and then, you know, adjust the level of protection and the rules to suit what we understand about risk and then empirically validate that. So if people are getting you know, bad infections in a group we thought was impervious, we're wrong and we have to adjust. And, and that was my argument. And uh, you know, looking back at history, pandemics have traditionally ended with naturally achieved herd immunity. But you're absolutely right. I, I also said you know, what we know about the risk differentials is only what we know so far. Yeah. The interesting thing, of course, is that the anti-vax campaign, that contingent, they, they make the same argument. We don't know what the long-term effects of these new vaccines are, and, and they're not wrong. So then no, the issue no. becomes one, and, and this is what I've argued all along. Look, the, the only risk-free option in a pandemic is not to be in a pandemic. Once you're in a pandemic, you're dealing with the risks of the pandemic. 
you can take your chances with the bug, which is basically a product of you know natural selection, and it will be advantaged any which way it can infect you and replicate in you, and the consequences be damned. Or you can take your chances with science, where people are working really hard to help you and avoid hurting you. <laughs> so yeah. you know, if you just had to get all things being equal, you're going to take your chances in either place. You know, there, there's a premium to place on science. But I've heard that argument as reasons people wouldn't get vaccinated, and and people have given me a hard time because you know I I argued early on I don't think we can shut the world down, and hope and wait for a vaccine. I think there's a better way. You know, I think some people who are relatively unlikely to be devastated by this virus are going to be devastated by shutting the world down. I mean, the most vulnerable people who are living hand to mouth. I mean, look what happened in India. You know, they, now they're they're afraid to lock down because the the you know they locked down when they didn't need to. And people were starving. You know, essentially, you know, they were always that basically, you know, their income meant their next meal. There, there was never any surplus. Yeah. So if you, you know, you right. locked down the country for days, it was days without food for a sizable yeah. portion of the Indian population. It was a disaster. So people were hurt with an indiscriminate lockdown. Now they're being hurt for want of a lockdown, and that that really highlights to the rest of the world there was more than one way for this pandemic to hurt people. We have to manage both. But many of the people who followed me because they liked what I was saying there, you know, now you're saying, well, now you're you're advocating for vaccines and you're a turncoat. And I said, no, I was always advocating for vaccines. I just didn't know when they were coming. And I didn't think we should predicate public health policy just on hope. You know, yeah. hope, I mean, we've been trying to develop an AIDS vaccine for 40 years and still don't have one. Or you just don't ever yeah. know. Are we suggesting we lock the world down for 40 years? Does anybody really want to think about that? We can't count on what we don't yet have. And so we need to do the best we can with what we have. And then if we develop new resources, make optimal use of them. I've always been a vaccine proponent. And by the way, so we talked about having COVID. So I had COVID. I was tested for antibodies. I had IgG. I, I had naturally achieved immunity. I've been vaccinated twice. I got the Moderna vaccine, luck of the draw. I've had both doses. There was actually a literature saying if you've had COVID and made antibodies, just one dose of the vaccine is the booster. You are as immune as anybody else getting two doses. But I said, you know, if anything, it, you know, the extra booster may make me bulletproof. <laughs> and it's also going to be much more convenient, frankly. And, yeah. you know, we now have massive information about these vaccines working as hoped, highly effective, uh, quite safe. And does yeah. that mean perfectly safe? Does that mean, you know, there's never going to be an adverse effect? Of course not. Nothing we do in science yeah. is perfect. But Again, in a pandemic, you don't have the option of avoiding all risk. And to remind people of this, because it's important, you don't have that option just by being alive either. I mean, every day you do yeah. stuff that puts you at risk. You take a shower and you could slip. And, and you know, yeah. People, yeah. people die taking showers you know, by the hundreds, if not thousands, every year in the United States. You cross the street, people get hit by cars. You ride your bike, people have, you know, I mean, on and on it goes, right? Living yeah. involves the risk of dying every yes, day. Absolutely. Uh, but in a pandemic, you've got specific pandemic-related risks. And what we try to do in medicine and public health is identify, given what's available to all of us today, the option that represents greatest probable benefit, least potential risk, and without doubt, that is getting vaccinated. Yeah. I, I would hope that what we learn from this is what you've been talking about repeatedly, which is nuance both on the scientific side and on the public side. On the scientific side, I think there's a disconnect between the science and translation and connection to other systems of the government. I saw this at, in other countries. 
But in 21st century, there should be a system in place where it looks at the economic consequences, the social consequences, the psychological consequences, and not just the biopic medical consequence of the given virus. I'm not reducing the importance of the virus right. by, by no stretch. But nuance and complexity is important. We, we completely agree with you. In my population, the, the, those with cognitive decline or in nursing homes, 18 to 20% increased mortality. Mm-hmm. We're right. talking, yeah. you know, that's just remarkable. It's huge. And, yeah. and I'm not saying that the, it shouldn't have been closed down, but we don't have a system to look at things in a more complex way. And I hope we learned that lesson. I agree. And as far as communication, people like you, and I don't mean this as fulsome flattery, I really, we really do admire you for this nuanced approach. My PhD thesis was the adaptive model to translation, Communi- uh, CBPR to be specific. When we go and translate lifestyle to different communities, it's a one model fit all. It always fails. And then we blame it on the person that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, I always say, you know, we created these questionnaires in Boston and 50-year-old white men in, uh, the, you know, uh, in Harvard, and then we applied it to 70-year-old Hispanic women in San Bernardino, and when it didn't <laughs> work, we blamed the population. Yeah. So it has well, to yeah, be adapted. Exactly. It really has to be right. adapted. It has to be nuanced. And I hope what comes out of this, both as far as the public health component, which is not just health, it's economics, it's psychology, you know, all the, the, the there's a connectivity there. And as far as translating the information, we completely agree with you. I mean, that the reason you were, we wanted to interview you first, we've seen you throughout this conversation. And the, you know, the word humble is a, is a little loaded. It, 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 it has a, but humble means being open to changing data and knowing your, your own relationship with that data. And so you never said you weren't wrong. You always said that it should be adapted. It should have a bigger picture. And, and that's how it should have been approached from the beginning. And I hope we're not out of this yet. I really think we're not out of this because I, we, on the other last point with you, which you made is we're a global society for many reasons, not just because, yeah, we're humanists. We care about everybody. <laughs> that virus can cross so quickly and evolve and come back and restart this whole journey. Yep. So we have to look at uh, the whole world in totality. Absolutely. And, and again, yeah. my personal experience, you know, do I blame the homeless person who was the likely source of infection in my family? No. For all I know, he didn't know there was a pandemic. But what it means is, you know, we're all as vulnerable as the weakest links in our connections to one another. And we're, we really yeah. are all in this together. And that's, that's a critical message. And, and that, boy, that's a, that's a signature issue for our time, you know, that, that we're all yeah. part of one great big extended human family. If the pandemic teaches us that, it will be a hard earned lesson, but a very valuable one just the same. Well, I that's hope a we good can, point. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. And I think we can end the conversation here. Here's to more nuanced conversations. Here's to creating more comfortable environments where people can come together and discuss and get to the truth together. Amen. Pleasure being with both of you. Thank you so much for Thank having me. Thank you so me. much for, Thank for you being so here much. with Dr. Katz. Appreciate it. Take good care. Bye.